0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Hello scumbags and scumbagettes, welcome back to the Scumbag Diaries. That song you guys just heard was an excerpt from the song You Suck by none other than the patron saint of the Scumbag Diaries himself, the immortal Bill Hicks. I actually used to listen to Bill's album Rant in E minor to fall asleep back in the day on nights when talk radio weren't playing and uh, that little tidbit of information might give you a little insight as to why I may have started a podcast, but shout out to my father, Randy Richter, for giving me that album. I definitely appreciated it. It helped shape my cynical worldview. Today's episode is scumbag comic book industry, and before we get into the main meat of the episode, I just want to talk a little bit of movie TV news, sort of like I did in the last episode. I just went through and binge-watched all of season two. Of Doom Patrol and all of the Watchmen series on HBO Max, and holy shit, guys, you should drop whatever you're doing right now and go watch it. If you don't have an HBO Max subscription, go sign up for the free trial and just binge watch it all as fast as you can, and I don't want to hear that you guys don't have time for it because I know at least 10% of my listeners do an 8-ball-of-cocaine every three days, it shows me that in my analytics, so go sign up for a free trial and binge watch all of Doom Patrol and all of the Watchmen TV series. The Watchmen series, um, I had mixed feelings about after I had finished it for about two days, but after mulling it over, I think that it was super badass, and it's, uh, it's not a continuation of the movie. It is a direct continuation of the comic books, and it, uh, it definitely pays homage to the source material really well. It's funny that every episode I end up going back to Alan Moore and Grant Morrison's work. And that's just a testament to how great they are at what they do, honestly, and the characters that they create. I also recently rewatched the Green Lantern movie with Ryan Reynolds. And I think we all give that movie a little bit too much hate. I think Ryan Reynolds was a perfect casting as Hal Jordan. Um, the suit was fucked. And what they did with Parallax was really whack. But an interesting thing about that movie I didn't know until I rewatched it with my girlfriend earlier today is that is where Blake Lively and Ryan Reynolds met each other. And now they are married and I think have like three kids or something. So go back and watch it again with sort of an open mind. And actually maybe just watch like the first 15 minutes and then create the rest of the narrative in your head. And overlay Ryan Reynolds' face on it, and that that that's pretty much what I did. I didn't rewatch the whole movie, but I thought that it was awesome that that's where Blake and Ryan met and started their relationship, and I wanted to share that with you guys. And in comic book movie news, I'm just going to go ahead and list a bunch of the upcoming comic book films uh, that are coming out in the next few years to sort of you know give give you guys something to look forward to in these dark and desperate times. We have the New Mutants. Coming out, which I briefly talked about in the last uh, episode of the podcast, which I'm really excited for. We also have Wonder Woman 1984, which is a prequel to Justice League, but a sequel to the Wonder Woman movie. We've got Black Widow coming out soon. It may actually already be on Disney+. Plus. I'm a little behind in the times, I apologize. Uh, We also have Venom 2 coming out, Marvel's The Eternals. We've got Morbius the Living Vampire, starring Jared Leto, which I talked about a little bit in the last episode. We have Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings coming out, and that movie is going to give us the first look in the MCU at the actual Mandarin, not the character that was played by Sir Ben Kingsley in Iron Man 3, ...but the actual real Mandarin that exists in the MCU. We've got Matt Reeves' The Batman, which is coming out, which we talked about recently... ...which is starring Robert Pattinson. I'm super excited for that. We've got Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Briefly went into that. I'm super excited about it. The implications of just the title of the movie give me chills... ...because we could see anything from Marvel Comics canon, really. And I think that at this point... The fan service is so real with all of the comic book movies that they'll do some deep cuts, and I'm ready for it. We have The Suicide Squad, which is a sequel to Suicide Squad, um, directed by James Gunn this time around, the guy who brought us the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I'm kind of glad David Ayer is not involved anymore, because even people at DC and Warner Brothers say he's the reason that... The DCEU sucks, and I would kind of blame Joss Whedon's Justice League for that as well. And I still think that we should hold Zack Snyder accountable for a couple of things. Mostly the Batman killing people. But everything else I can can forgive, but Batman killing people is something that, as a hardcore fan... I know he's done it in the comics, but for the chunk of my life, the biggest majority of my life... Batman has had one rule, and he has not broken that rule unless it was in an alternate universe, and if I can just fit the DCU into one of those universes where Batman's morals are skewed just a little bit, I like it, and I'll accept that, but fuck you Zack Snyder for, you know, being a dick. We also have a new Spider-Man movie coming out soon. There are rumors in that that, uh, Daredevil is going to show up. And hopefully that happens. If so, the rumors are going to be that Matt Murdock is going to be Peter Parker's lawyer in the murder trial for Mysterio. I don't know if they plan on using the actor from the Daredevil Netflix series, but if that is the case, awesome. That will be the first real way the MCU is tied into those. And we we were told when the Netflix series came out, uh, Daredevil, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, and the Defenders... That they existed in the MCU canon, and really the only connections were referencing the attack from the Avengers on New York. There was a photo of Stanley dressed as the chief of police, and they mentioned a couple of the heroes. But we didn't get any really concrete evidence that they exist in the same universe, and now they're all just cancelled. And I think that was a waste of everyone's time if they don't tie it in somehow. We have a Black Adam movie coming out starring The Rock. He's going to be more of a straight up antihero um, than a villain, and he eventually becomes that in the comic books anyway. But I think they're going to do like a they're going to make Black Adam much more likable in this movie. We have Thor London, Love and Thunder, which is going to give us female Thor, Jane Foster. They're bringing back the actress from the first movie who played her. I don't know if Kat Dennings is going to come back, but I know that they're bringing back Jane Foster, who was played by Natalie Portman. Um, Thor, Chris Hemsworth Thor, is going to be in the movie too, and Mjolnir is coming back somehow. I don't know if they're going to reforge the hammer, but that's going down and it's awesome. We got Shazam 2 coming out also. We have Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 2, which is exciting. We're going to see Ben Riley in that movie. That is confirmed. I am super duper excited about that. Ben Reilly's Scarlet Spider is my favorite version of Spider-Man of all time. We're going to get Black Panther 2. We're going to get the Flash movie, which is going to follow the Flashpoint Paradox story arc. We're going to get a Jeffrey Dean Morgan Batman in that movie. We're going to get Michael Keaton's Batman returning from the Tim Burton universe. He's going to have the cowl on once again, ladies and gentlemen. We're getting Captain Marvel 2. Don't really care about that. The only thing I have to say, the only thing in Captain Marvel that I like was Stanley's cameo where he was reading the script for Mallrats. Because that officially canonizes Kevin Smith as a real person in both, and actually, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the DC Animated Universe, and the larger DC Live Action Multiverse. And that is fantastic. You go, Kev. We're going to get Aquaman 2, most likely Sans Amber Heard because of her recent controversy in trying to ruin Johnny Depp's life and failing. We're getting a Batgirl film, which is being written and directed by Joss Whedon. We're getting a Green Lantern Core film, which may actually end up being an HBO Max series in the long run. We're going to get a live-action Justice League Dark movie. And that excites me to no end, because anyone who's listened to any episode of this podcast has heard the name John Constantine at least one time, because he's the GOAT. He is the... He, he's, he's just the greatest. He's a sorcerer, he's a con man, he's my favorite. There are rumors that Keanu Reeves might even reprise the role of John Constantine for this Justice League Dark film, and if that is the case... I'm fully behind it. I'm down with it. It's not as close to the source material as I'd like, but if it's in the DCEU, nothing is. So I think that Keanu Reeves' Constantine would fit great into that universe, and I would watch it. I'd pay money to see it. I'd pay money to see it multiple times. I wouldn't even pirate it if I still pirated films. That's it for the movie news and everything. We'll go ahead and get into the actual content of the episode today. Before we get started, I want to explain that comic books are a subject near and dear to my heart for a lot of reasons. I joke all of the time that I learned all of my morals from comic books and that I was basically raised by them, but the fact of the matter is that's pretty much true. Comic books are, and specifically comic book superheroes, are today's modern myths. They're our generation's version of Hercules and Perseus and all of the, and Odysseus, you know, they're, they're our versions of those stories. They're just the reincarnated archetypes of the ancient heroes. And that's a really powerful thing, you know, and a lot of people just dismiss comic books as like pulp garbage or childish things, but that's not the case, man. Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't have a father. I had a revolving door of meth addict, scumbag, white supremacist pieces of shit that were coming through my life, and, you know, the only thing they taught me was that I was inadequate, and that I didn't know anything, and that I was an idiot was something. I got called a lot by these fucking redneck fucks, but... No matter what happened in life, uh, whether that was, you know, physical abuse or just having to deal with crazy meth episodes where my mother would tell me there were people outside of the house with lasers and the people were coming to get me. And as a child, you believe all of the things your mother tells you, you don't understand what the hell's going on or that she's on a drug that's eating away her frontal lobe. At the end of all the chaos... At the end of all of the fear, at the end of all of the pain, when I would retreat to my bedroom, I had Spider-Man, Batman, Captain America, The Guardians of the Galaxy, Biker Mice from Mars. I had comic books. And they they didn't just teach me about morals and right from wrong and greed, hatred, racism. The X-Men are literally an allegory for racism. Comic books are one of the most powerful mediums that we have ever had, and they reach people in a way that movies and music and other things don't. Um, The Wu-Tang Clan, everyone in the Wu-Tang Clan, they had a drastically different life than I did. I grew up between Florida and Kentucky in just a white trash cesspit of bullshit, right? And I was reading the exact same comic books that Ghostface Killer was reading while he was taking care of his brothers with cerebral palsy in wheelchairs while his house was getting shot up. Method Man was working at an electronics store reading the same comic books. I don't know why I just went with two members of the Wu-Tang Clan. Everyone, like Kevin Smith, also has comic books. There are lots of people who were affected by comic books in the same way, and I wish that the medium were respected a bit more. Like today, for instance, an issue of a comic book might get lucky to sell 100,000 copies, whereas in the late 80s, early 90s, a comic book would come out and easily sell hundreds of thousands of copies. But the comics are near and dear to me, and as a result of basically being raised by them, I have a deep emotional connection to fictional characters. And that could be a psychological issue that I need to work on, I don't know. But ever since I was young, I've always believed that if you create something, if you conceptualize something... It exists somewhere, because your mind expands as infinitely inward as space expands infinitely outward. Uh, Almost like Chalk Zone, you know, the kid drew something and it existed in the creative realm. I think that if you create a story or a character or anything, that it exists as a thought form in some sort of pocket dimension. Whether that's inside your own mind or what, I, I don't really know. But the only reason I can even conceptualize something as outlandish as that is because when I was younger, coming up, reading comic books, they taught me about the multiverse theory and quantum mechanics and physics and just everything you could think of. Hate, love, sex, everything on the emotional spectrum, uh, poverty, greed, war, all of it. Comic books. And that's why... They are a staple in my life. Earlier today, I was actually talking to my little brother about uh, comic books and what I was going to talk about in the episode tonight. And I talked to him about how when, before he was even born, his father, my father, but uh, my he's not my biological father, but he is the closest thing to a father I've ever had. And I definitely consider him to be my dad. But he shared with me his comic book collection. I told my little brother about that. And he went and asked him. And my father gave my little brother his comic book collection. And that is exciting that now my brother is showing excitement for something that meant the world to me. And honestly, um, when my mom married his dad, he sort of took over the role that comic books had had for the entire of my life. And I know this is this is sort of a sad, depressing shitty way to start the episode, but I just want to just reiterate how much comic books actually mean to me. The first thing I want to talk about having to do with the scumbag comic book industry might actually have sort of an answer as to why comics today only sell around a 100,000 copies versus the hundreds of thousands of copies to millions of copies that they sold in the 90s, and that has to do with, believe it or not, The Nazis! That's right, guys, we're going back to the Nazis yet again. These themes, they keep running throughout all of the episodes, man. It's weird how interwoven things are. But during World War II, um, we were running low on supplies and stuff, and the government was calling for people to recycle things. Papers, magazines, they're like, if you find that your kids have a bunch of comic books lying around, a bunch of pulp garbage that nobody needs, then just send it on down to us, and they're transatlantic, ridiculous propaganda voice that I wish I could replate, replicate properly for my podcast because I totally would go full-blown Orson Welles. But they called for parents to recycle all of their kids' comic books. And when all of these great American patriots took their children's comic books away from them and basically handed them over to the government to be recycled and whatever the fuck they needed the comic book paper for, that meant that a lot of issues didn't survive. So a lot of the comic books that came out during World War II and before were worth a shit ton of money. Uh, And as a result, later on down the road in the 80s and 90s when people started realizing how much an action comics number one was or how much... Amazing Fantasy number 15 was after all of that. They started speculating that later on in life all of the comic books coming out at that time would be worth as much. They weren't really taking into account why all of the comics were worth that much money. And so the comic book industry took advantage of that hard and they started putting out variant covers. In sets, I believe uh, Jim Lee's crowning achievement in comics is X-Men issue number one, which is to this day in 2020 the highest selling comic of all time with something to the tune of like 8 million copies. But I think that when they released that, they had almost uh, three or four variant covers with it, and people bought them all up. Boom, boom, boom. Spending all their money on it. They would get every issue that came out because they thought that down the road the comics would be worth money. And the fact of the matter is that the people making the comics and putting out all of the variant covers knew that that wasn't going to be the case. They were just capitalizing on the speculation. And uh, that's that's really the first shady scumbag thing the comic industry's done that I wanted to get into. Because now as comic books are source material for Hollywood, there is a resurgence in comic book worth. So, dear listeners, if you get a hankering to go out and invest some money, maybe this will help you out. Nowadays, comic books are becoming worth more and more money, not based on scarcity, um, but based on the films coming out. For instance, before the Venom movie came out, Venom's first appearance in Spider-Man 299, I think, was his first partial appearance. I'll Google it because I'm not completely certain. But that issue skyrocketed in price before the movie came out. Um, when Birds or when Suicide Squad came out, Harley Quinn's first appearance, which in comic books was actually a comic book tie-in of Batman the animated series where she was made, that comic book went from like $20 to $200, and Guardians of the Galaxy comics, all of, you can pretty much predict, based on upcoming comic book films, which back issues are going to be worth money in the future. So maybe you guys should go and re-listen to that live upcoming comic book movies I was giving you guys in the beginning of the episode and go pick up all of those characters' first appearances because I promise you that is gonna is gonna gain gain profit in the long run. And I'm not trying to capitalize like the scum, the scumbag comic book industry did in the eighties or nineties. That's just you know, the times they are a changing, as Bob Dylan said. Next up we're gonna talk about something that may piss off a couple of comic book fans, but it's alright. Stan Lee was born on December 28, 1992. As Stan was growing up, he had the dream of becoming the next great American author. He wanted to write novels, he wanted to be world-renowned for his writing ability. That didn't really pan out for Stan, and eventually he found himself working at Marvel Studios. He wasn't exactly happy with his lot in life because he had basically given up his dream to draw cartoon panels, or write cartoon panels. He wasn't actually a, uh, an artist. So he he's, he's well known in comic books and I love Stanley. Everyone who knows anything about comics knows who he is and loves him. He's the reason that Marvel comics rose to where they are. He's honestly probably the reason comics are as mainstream as they are today. He created characters such as Spider-Man, and Fantastic Four, the first family of comics. But the reason Stan is at the forefront of comics has a mostly a lot to do with the fact that he is well. He's well-spoken. He could talk in front of cameras, he didn't stumble over words or stutter like I myself do. He was a likable guy, had a lot of charisma and personality, and of course his stories definitely had a great impact on comics. The reason he even created Spider-Man is actually because he would planned on quitting writing comics altogether, and he went home to his wife, and she said, well, if you plan on quitting, just do what you want first. Just go for it. Just do what you want. So he wrote Spider-Man along with his partner, Jack Kirby, and boom, now we have multiple movie franchises, video game franchises, comic books. Spider-Man's a household name today. However... Because of Stan Lee's meteoric rise to success, other people were overshadowed. Most notably, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee's longtime collaborator. 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 Uh, Jack Kirby was the artist for all of Stan's books, most of Stan's books. Stan worked with Steve Ditko and lots of other artists, but for the most part, it was him and Jack Kirby. Jack was not well-spoken. He was like myself. He stuttered over words and stumbled through sentences and had a hard time, especially in front of cameras. In fact, in some of the brief interviews that he did do on camera that are still out there, you can see he was uncomfortable with that and was not as charismatic as Stan. Eventually Stan adopted something called the Marvel method of writing comics and it streamlined how many issues they could put out, and how fast they could do it, but what the Marvel method essentially was, was Stan would come to the office, he would leave post-it notes around the office for Jack Kirby, in like brief outlines of the stories, and then Jack would just have to draw the entirety of the comic by himself while Stan was out giving interviews, and jack kirby created one of the most important comic book characters ever on a whim while stan was gone one day stan had left a fantastic four storyboard in the form of post-it notes around the office and jack was drawing it and when stan came in he noticed that there was a figure that he hadn't you know created or conceptualized in the panels of the comic book and he said you know jack what's this and it was silver server And Jack said, well, you know, Stan, I thought that Galactus, as big a bad as he is, could use a herald of some sort, and that's just what I ended up drawing. And uh, I think Stan was like, okay, we have a name for him, boom, Silver Surfer, so he did coin the name. But a lot of stuff like that happened to Jack Kirby throughout his career, and I think he deserves just as much recognition as Stan Lee. And that's really all i got to say about that. But it totally brings me in to the next thing I want to talk about, In the scumbag comic industry that has to do with my favorite dc character batman robert kane was born on october 24th 1915 he was an american comic book writer and animator and artist who created batman he got sole credit for creating batman and the joker and basically the original mythos of the character and that went on for decades, until probably the last 10 years when people found out that he basically stole all of the credit for Batman from a Mr. Milton Bill Finger who was born on January 18th, 1974. Bill Finger was an American comic strip and comic book writer who is credited as being the co-creator now, after everything's come to light of Batman with Bob Kane but what he does not get credit for even after all of the truth came to light is he created the joker there was a series of drawings that were unearthed of storyboards for the original uh issue of detective comics in which robin was introduced and in that you can clearly see the joker is the ringleader no pun intended, of the goons who eventually caused the demise of the Flying Graysons. And most people have heard Bob Kane's name. If you saw the Tim Burton Batman movies, the little sketch of the man-bat that was handed to George Knox in the very first scene of the movie was drawn and autographed by Bob Kane. But no one really knows the name Bill Finger, and I just wanted to throw that in there, to sort of uh, give some recognition to the people who I don't believe have gotten enough. While we're on the topic of people not getting credit for the things they created before I get into the main meat of this episode, which is the formation of Image Comics, I also want to point out that the two men who created Superman didn't make a fucking dime off of it. And when you think about... How much money Superman, as an intellectual property, has made in the last in decades, guys. He's literally been around since, I, th- I want to say, the fucking 30s. Yeah, he's been around since the 30s. Think of all the money that's been made off of that S on his chest since the 1930s, and the original creator, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, got completely snubbed and didn't make any money off of it. And that's just something else I wanted to throw into the comic book industry episode mix. But now we're getting into the main point of the entire episode. I am super excited to get into it. It's one of the most punk rock, fantastic stories in the comic book industry history. In the year 1991, 39 of the top 50 comics at that time were written by seven men. Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, Wills Portasio, and Mark Silvestri. Jim Lee was writing the X-Men and he sold 8 billion copies. Rob Liefeld was writing The X-Force, and he sold 5 million copies. Todd McFarlane was writing his Spider-Man book and sold 2.5 million copies. These seven gentlemen would go on to form Image Comics, and this is the story of how that happened. Mark Silvestri was born in Palm Beach, Florida on March 29, 1958. His most known works were Cyber Force, The Darkness, Uncanny X-Men, Witchblade, and the standalone Wolverine title. He discovered comic books through his cousin. He started his career at DC Comics and joined Marvel in the late 80s. Eric Silvestri wrote all of the stories for Cyberforce. That was his younger brother. In 2004, Eric Silvestri returned to Marvel to work on X-Men with Grant Morrison, our favorite chaos magician. Jim Valentino was born this October 28th, 1952. He is most notably known for writing Guardians of the Galaxy, Drawing Guardians of the Galaxy, Normal Man, and the Image Comics property Shadowhawk. He discovered Robert Kirkman, who would later join the board of directors at Image Comics, but he is the man responsible for the best-selling comic book series of all time, The Walking Dead. In 1999, Jim Valentino became the publisher of Indige Comics and expanded on the brand. Will Portazio is well-known for writing Iron Man, Punisher, he worked on Spawn, Uncanny X-Men, Stone, Wetwork, and he created My Favorite Mutant, Bishop. Eric Larson was born December eighth, 1962. He's credited for working on Amazing Spider-Man, Doom Patrol with Grant Morrison, our favorite chaos magician, once again, Savage Dragon, my stepfather's favorite comic book, Spawn, Supreme, and Supreme is really dark, by the way. It's like, when I read my first issue of Supreme, I, I thought it was, I, it was sort of my first introduction to Image Comics, and I didn't know how punk rock they really were and how dark it got, But I was flipping through the panels, and I saw, like, this basically Superman character, and as he went through the villain's hideout, they were, like, severed heads of his young compatriots. Imagine if there were a Batman comic, and he was walking through the Joker's house, and he just saw Robin's head on the fucking wall. That was pretty much the reaction that I had to this comic book. It blew my mind. Rob Liefeld was born on October third, 1967. He is credited with working on Youngblood for Image Comics. He worked on X-Force. He is actually the creator of both Deadpool and Cable, and he's most notably known for not being able to draw feet. Liefeld's love of comics came to him as a child. He practiced by tracing comic books. His father was a Baptist preacher he was he was known for having sort of goofy anatomy he's actually the person who gave us that amazing picture of captain america with large breasts and uh when he initially started working at marvel comics he didn't even have his driver's license he was really young and he's one he's probably the i don't want to say least skilled artist because that's he's definitely better than me and he created deadpool but he's been poked fun of by all the other guys at image comics for not really being the best artistically. Jim Lee was born August 11th, 1964. He's notably known for working on All-Star Batman, Batman Hush, The Fantastic Four, Punisher War, Spider-Man or Superman for Tomorrow, Sp- Superman Unchained. Justice League, and the Uncanny X-Men. He wrote Wildcats while he was at Image Comics, and later when he left Image, he actually brought the Wildcats property to DC and folded all of his characters, such as Grifter, into the DC canon, and uh, that's actually a move that I think is pretty cool. Uh, He actually brought the entire Wildcats imprint to DC Comics from Image Comics. Todd McFarlane is probably my favorite of the Magnificent Seven. And that is because the way Todd McFarlane drew Spider Man is ingrained in my mind as the way Spider Man should look on any medium. He was the reason Spider Man's fucking kneecap was like above his head while he was swinging through the city. He just. <laughs> dynamic as hell. And uh, he draws Spawn in the same way. In fact, after. Todd left Marvel and they started Image and he started drawing Spawn. He threw a big fuck you up to Marvel by drawing the cover of one of the Spawn comics as like... It's literally the exact same cover as a Spider-Man comic. They're in the same pose. The architecture is the same. It's just Spawn instead of Spider-Man, and I think that's really punk rock. Uh, He also has McFarlane Toys, which is the first company that really, like, took making action figures seriously. Um, He makes the most realistic action figures and toys. He doesn't just make um, Spawn toys and comic book-based toys. He makes makes Band toys, he makes Simpsons toys, he makes Kiss toys, and they're all hyper-realistic and super badass. I used to play with them all the time. I wish that I had some of them left. He drew Spawn for the first time while he was in high school. And I think he may have submitted a couple of stories of Spawn to, like, some magazine before he even got into the comic book industry. But I could be confusing that story with someone else. But the fact of the matter is, Todd McFarlane is one of the most prolific comic book artists in the entire world. And he's sort of an egotistical asshole. But if I were Todd McFarlane, I would be too, man. Like, I literally... His drawing of Spider-Man is the epitome of what the web-slinger should look like. In almost the same way that Jim Lee's drawing of Batman, in my mind, is the epitome of what Batman should look like. Out of all of the artists of Image Comics, I think that Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee, I'm going to tie them at best. If I were to get really critical of it, and put aside my love for Spider-Man, which I don't think I can do, but if hypothetically I could do that, I would say Jim Lee were the better artist. artist. And something recently has happened to me, guys. Growing up, uh, people who know me are going to be completely shocked by this, but growing up, I was an avid Marvel comic fan. I used to preach about how Marvel Comics was far superior to DC Comics, and now, since I've had my daughter, I don't know what being a father has to do with it, but my views have shifted, and I think that DC Comics is my favorite now, I really do, I think DC Comics is better than Marvel Comics, and that might piss a few people off, but that's just, you know, my opinion, man, and uh, everyone's allowed to have one, he, Todd McFarlane also did album artwork for Corn, and he's done music videos, animations, stuff like that, Todd McFarlane has a new Spawn movie coming out soon that he was supposed to direct, it's sort of in, like, development hell, so I don't really know what the news with that is, I'll try to I'll go ahead and look that up and throw that into the first part of the next episode. The There was a Spawn movie that came out in the 90s starring Michael Jai White, which is a really, really good movie. Um, but according to Todd McFarlane, Michael Jai White, and other people on set, it would have been a way better movie, uh, except for the fact that the director was super duper obsessed with special effects and how far they had come at the time and at the time it was super impressive I remember being a kid and watching Spawn and being like holy shit this is completely unbelievable but now if we go back and watch it it's not that impressive and you see how they they took too much focus off of the story and put it onto the special effects and I think that was a mistake so I'm looking forward to seeing the new Todd McFarlane spawn movie and I also would suggest people go check out the HBO spawn animated series which is on HBO max currently you guys can do that while you're cocaine binging doom patrol and um, <laughs> and watchmen uh you guys will definitely enjoy that too but uh that's enough about the individual characters that make up image comics now I'm going to get into the story of how they were formed it's the early 90s, and for the most part, Marvel Comics has been allowing its top artists to have creative control of the narrative that the characters are going through. It's basically the reverse Marvel method the artists draw the comic book, and then the writer goes back and fills in the story. Now, for some reason, All of a sudden, the executives at Marvel Comics sort of shift direction and they decide that they're going to give creative control to the writers and basically make the graphic artists slave to them again, which sounds all well and good, except for the fact that the artists have been carrying the company uh, for years. And without these seven artists specifically, Marvel probably would have tanked. They brought life to the franchise. Um, they are the reason that all of the women in Marvel Comics started, like, looking super, super sexy in their scantily clad clothing. plus, it was just the 90s. It's the way things were back then. But, this did not sit well with some of the artists. Specifically, with Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld. Rob Liefeld was actually the first to quit Marvel Comics, soon followed by Todd McFarlane. And Rod rob got an idea to just go off on his own and make his own comic he eventually called todd McFarlane and said hey man i'm gonna go you know make my own comic what do you think about that and todd said yeah that's fine and they they just sort of kicked the idea around it was more of a joke really they went out to dinner with an executive for a, another comic book company and they were like hey if i rob said hey if i wrote a comic book would you publish it and the guy said yeah of course you know, he thought they were joking. He was laughing. He said, "Well, what if what if Todd came with me?" And he also wrote one. But he published that. And he goes, "Yeah, of course." And he goes, "All right. Well, what if what if I brought along Eric Larson, and Jim Valentino?" And the guy says, "Yeah, of course." I wasn't taking them seriously. But eventually, they got together and decided they wanted to do their own thing. Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, and Jim Valentino. They even decided they were going to go have a meeting at Marvel and basically just lay it all on the table. Tell them they were going to start their own comic book company. And there was nothing Marvel could do about it, and they were about to be rivals. So Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, Eric Larson, and uh, Jim Valentino are going to New York to have a meeting with Marvel executives. While they're there, Todd McFarlane runs into Jim Lee at an art auction. And Todd McFarlane has the gift of gab. He's a salesman. He goes up to Jim Lee, who, by the way, at Marvel Comics was the golden child. He was the Boy Scout. Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane were like the rogue, chaos cedars. They were the bad boys, the class clowns of Marvel Comics. So the fact that those two had quit sort of just eased the stress of the executives. You know, they still had Jim Lee, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, Will Sportasio, and Mark Silvestri, for the time being. Eventually, Jim just looked at Todd and said, "I'm in." I'm in. I'm down. I'll quit Marvel. I'll come start this new uh, this new venture with you guys. Then on the way back to the hotel that night, Todd McFarlane ran into M- w- Wills Portasio at the hotel and gave him the speech about the comic book. And Will said, all right, yeah, I'm in. And the, Todd said he had to answer before 7 a.m. the next day because that's when the meeting at Marvel was. And Will said he was in. And then they called Mark Silvestri. Mark Silvestri was in, too. Boom. Whole squad in New York City go to a meeting at Marvel Comics. They sit down, and Rob Liefeld and Tom McFarlane say, you know, we're going to start our own company. We're going to start pushing our own books. We're each going to have individual rights to our books and creative control, and the main company just gets a small percentage off the back end to survive. Marvel Comics pretty much... All but last these guys out of the building. There's an anecdote from the meeting that I like a lot where Todd McFarlane goes on a tirade. And he talks about how his dad slaved his life away for 25 years at a factory. And the factory was ungrateful for him. But even when his father retired, they gave him a watch. And he slammed his hand on the table and said, you can't even give me a fucking watch. And I think that's a, that's a nice little anecdote. But anyway, they go there. They lay the hammer down at Marvel Comics. Say they're going to start their own stuff. And they leave. Later that day, they're all going out to dinner, they're talking about it, they're excited, they're feeling themselves, they're all young in their early 20s, they all are grabbing the comic book industry by the balls, right? So they say, let's set a meeting with the DC executives tomorrow. They call, set up a meeting, no one has any idea what the meeting's about. So you get Jim Lee... Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, Wills Portazio, and Mark Silvestri walking into a boardroom at DC Comics. The executives of DC have no idea what's going on. They look at Jim Lee, and they know that he's the highest-selling comic book artist of all time. That eight million issues that he sold of of X-Men number one, they want in on that. So they think that these seven guys quit Marvel to come over DC, and they're drooling. They're sitting down at the table. And then they sit down there. The only person, mind you, who hadn't worked for DC at this point was Jim Lee. The rest of the Image crew had at one point worked for DC in some fashion or another. And they're just chopping at the bit to get Jim Lee on board. And eventually, later on, after his stint at Marvel, they would get their wish. Jim would go on to be one of the most prolific Batman artists of all time. He would bring the Wildcat imprints over there. Jim Lee has a fantastic home at DC Comics, and I'm glad he ended up there. In the long run. Now, they have the meeting with DC Comics. And they say, we're going to start our own comic book company. Uh, we're, we're going on our own. And DC is like, why the hell are you guys even here to tell us this? You know, It's kind of a dick move. But the guys, they leave going about their business. Boom. Next thing you know, Image Comics is trying to get published. But there's a monopoly on... Publishers. There's one publishing company that publishes the comics from DC and Marvel Comics. And because of the way that the boys sort of handled things, they got snubbed. So they just fucking start their own publishing company and they start publishing their own comics. Each writer has exclusive rights to the characters they bring to the table and exclusive creative control. The company gets a small percentage off the back end, like I said earlier. But for the most part, your comic book makes your money. And you get your recognition from it. And that model has stayed with Image Comics all the way up until today. Um, And with Robert Kirkman, for example, they gave him full creative control over The Walking Dead. And he's had it ever since then. The only... And this is... Actually, I'll save the Robert Kirkman anecdote for the the end of the episode. Because it's not really scumbaggy, but it's interesting. And I'm almost done anyway. They start their own imprint. They put out their first couple of issues of... Youngblood and of Supreme and stuff, and everyone's buying it. Uh, Rob Liefeld has this story of they were there selling Youngblood, and Easy e walked up to him and started talking to him and that blew his mind. These guys were rock stars. And the first initial couple issues of the Image Comics series, the story and the writing weren't the greatest in comic book history. But one thing that I can say about Image Comics is they have the best artwork, the most dynamic artwork, and they really push the envelope with the amount of things that you can see. For instance, when I was a young kid living in the trailer park in London, Kentucky, behind Walmart, I had an issue of a Youngblood comic that I was kind of obsessed with. And in that issue, there's like this lycanthrope character who is having sex with this woman in the first couple pages of the comic book and that's a weird thing to see in a comic book anyway especially for a young kid you're used to seeing superman flying around lifting cars and stuff but while this werewolf and this woman are basically engaged in sexual congress bullets just fly through and riddle them both and the woman dies and the lycanthrope is just completely unfazed by the entire thing and the only other comic book imagery that sticks in my mind that hard is from the chase storyline with spider-man where he comes home in a ripped mask and he's out hunting the chameleon and he's in a rage and he yells at mary jane that i don't know why those two stick into my mind but those two those are just the way those were drawn is uh is super impactful Eventually, they hired some writers to come in and help smooth things out, and I think Todd McFarlane, after 70 issues of Spawn, may have even stepped back even further from that. But Image Comics has grown since then to a degree where there are tons of genres of comics in Image Comics. And I'll uh, I'll go ahead and list some of the Image Comics out today that are super badass. We've got Deadly Class, Birthright, Bliss, Chew, Death and Glory, Decorum, Die, East of West, Gideon Falls, Low, Middle West, Monstrous, Gnomen Omen, Oliver, Safe Sex, which is a controversial series in itself, and Tartarus. Those are just some of the best-selling comics they have going now. Plus, The Walking Dead is an Image comic, which I will just going to get into that story. When Robert Kirkman was pitching the idea for The Walking Dead to The Magnificent Seven, if you will, he <laughs> talked about how he wanted to make a zombie book and all this stuff, and the guys at Image Comics were sort of like, you know, horror is sort of played out. Uh, I don't know if there's really a market for a zombie apocalypse comic book series. Is there anything that would like set you apart from comic or zombie movies and stuff like that? And thinking on the fly, Robert Kirkman, who himself is a Kentuckian, said, yeah, at the end, you find out that the reason there are zombies all over the earth is because of aliens. And that was the hook that snagged their jaw and got Kirkman the job at Image Comics. And uh, after he started, he had exclusive rights to the comics and narrative so eventually, years down the road, I believe it was a, uh, I believe it was Eric Larson who came to him and said, "So, Robert, what, what about the aliens?" And Robert just said, "You know, I, I lied about that. There are no aliens." And now, Image Comics, run of the Walking Dead, is coming to an end. And sure enough, there were no aliens. Maybe they'll work it into the TV series because that strays from the source material a bit. But who knows? On the whole, Image Comics has definitely shifted the direction of the comic book industry, and with all the faults in the, the story and the writing, and there's there's a bunch of internal drama. Rob Liefeld's left and come back. Eric Larson's left and come back. Jim Lee's left and come back. Todd McFarlane, uh, his ego still permeates throughout Image Comics and the comic book industry as a whole, and there's a lot of tension between them, but the the, the fact of the matter is these seven men are the most influential comic book artists of all time sans with the exception of jack kirby and steve Ditko, and there's actually a story about how mark silvestri called jack kirby in the beginning of image comics because todd mcfarlane thought about how all the uh earlier marvel comics said you know presented by stan lee and he wanted to throw a big fuck you to Stan Lee for snuffing Jack Kirby like we talked about earlier. And in the, be- image of all, in the beginning of all the Image Comics, he wanted there to be a tiny panel that said presented by Jack Kirby. And while I'm mad that that didn't happen, I just knowing that that was on Tom McFarlane's mind makes me feel pretty good. But... Mark Silvestri called Jack Kirby and told them what they were doing, and Jack Kirby gave them a shining seal of improvement, and from that day forward, his wife referred to the Magnificent Seven as the Image Boys. That's really all I got for this episode. I tried to stretch it to an hour. I'm not quite sure how close I got to it, but I gotta, I gotta go back to work tomorrow, and the baby has to go to sleep soon, so I'm gonna go ahead and call it a day. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I jumped around a little bit at the end, and I, I had had all these notes, and I just ended up getting super fucking excited, and uh, just rambling on. So maybe, maybe you guys hate this episode. Maybe it'll be one of your favorites. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Either way, man, everybody love everybody. And in the words of the immortal Bill Hicks, it's just a ride.